in preparing for this message, I thought, you know, as we move through the decades, especially as we move into the second half of life, it becomes really important to be even more nuanced than we have in terms of the contours that the spiritual journey takes. Because in my experience, it becomes harder and harder the older we get to accurately predict or summarize where we're going to be at a particular stage of life, especially as we move into and through what I talked about last week, this midlife transition. Because the shape of your 50s, 60s, and beyond will, to a large degree, be based on the decisions you've made in the previous decade. So, for example, we talked last week about the midlife transition from spirituality of the two halves of life, how the rules for growth and vibrancy in the first half have to, uh, certain uh, principles and priorities need to take a front seat. But then as we move into and through midlife, those have to transition and kind of switch places, not be discarded, but switch places, driver's seat, passenger seat, to a new set of values, a deepening of things like generosity and humility, faith, active trust in God. So you can imagine one second half of life is going to play out very differently if you dig your heels in and just resist that transition. Your second half of life is going to look very differently um, if you are following Jesus into that transition or not and just trying to piece together the pieces uh, to this journey on your own. The second half of your life is going to be shaped immensely by decisions that you're making in terms of investing in your marriage, investing in key relationships, small decisions along the way to forgive, to to forgive and to extend grace. And so I want to admit that summarizing the key element of the spiritual journey in our 50s as we move into the second half of life, to me feels a little bit um, too artificial, uh, overly simplified maybe. All of our journeys are unique, and we've been laying the groundwork for that as we've moved through this series. But I really believe that into the midlife transition, though that uniqueness, the uniqueness of our individual journeys, really do get magnified. And therefore, speaking about the spiritual journey with a tremendous amount of predictive clarity in the 50s, 60s, and beyond, I think is fraught with peril. So what I've decided to do for these last two weeks is I'm going to take a chunk of Scripture, I'm going to teach through it, and there are two pieces of Scripture that I think speak to major themes that as we move into and through our 50s, 60s, and beyond, these have to become a forefront as we seek to navigate the journey well. So if you can grab a Bible... Uh, open up your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings 19 verses 1 to 21. I believe this has a lot of lessons for us related to moving into our 50s and, and, and more broadly speaking, the second half of our life well. 1 Kings chapter 19 is in the Old Testament. You can look it up in the index if you're unfamiliar with it. I want to draw our attention to a few things. Number one, some context. Israel as a nation is divided, north Israel, south Judah. In the north, a ruler called Ahab comes to power. He marries a Baal-worshipping pagan woman named Jezebel. Scripture kind of speaks in really direct and open terms about how corrupt they are, how evil they are, how unjust they are, 
how they use their power to exploit and uh, just cause all kinds of destruction, not just at the social level, but also at the spiritual level. The scripture talks about how no other king before Ahab aroused the Lord's anger as much as Ahab did. Uh, We've just come off of one of the more famous stories in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah has had this massive showdown between himself and uh, hundreds of prophets of Baal. And there's kind of like this uh, sacrifice Super Bowl that happened where it was like, which God is real? We're going to set up two altars. Whatever God answers by fire, that's the real one. The prophets of Baal spend their whole day trying to implore their God to respond to them. Nothing happens. Elijah prays. Boom, there's this awesome explosion. It's a great chapter to go back and read and to kind of uh, play it out in your mind's eye like you would like a movie. Really, really exciting. It's, it's comic. It's, uh, it, it's really action-packed. It's very, very good. So Elijah is just coming off this experience, this incredible mountaintop literal experience of seeing God move in a powerful way, in an obvious way, and defeating these prophets of Baal, putting them to the sword. And then we pick up the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah and said, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So she's kind of put a bounty on his head. And Elijah, this prophet of God, we read, was afraid and ran for his life. Remember the context. He's just seen God move in unbelievable supernatural power. Now a threat comes from this pagan queen. He's afraid, runs for his life. Life has become overwhelming to him very quickly, in short order. And we don't know all the contours of what's happening in Elijah's interior life. But what has happened is that the fear of man has eclipsed the fear of God. Fear generally has eclipsed faith and trust in God. And he's running for his life. So he's turned, his motivations now are self-preservation. And I think that is the first temptation. I'm going to talk about three temptations and five truths in this passage that I think are helpful for us as we move into the second half of life. The first temptation that I think this passage really shows us is just the temptation to run away. Just run away. This can happen in life's second half. You can have demands of life, wounds that you've incurred from walking the journey, threats that come from the outside, maybe some interior threats, voices in your heart, And these can begin to pile up, and it's tempting to want to throw in the towel and to run away. And for a lot of people, running away doesn't look like literally running away. Some people it is. They abandon their marriage. They move to a new place, hoping to escape the problems that seem to be following them and uh, where they had lived. But for a lot of people, being afraid and running away takes a much more subtle as much more nuanced expression. It looks a lot more like a deadening of one's faith and a disengagement with life. A running away from their sense of calling, their sense of mission in Christ to self-preservation. Eyes that once were Godward focused become selfward focused. And instead of living for God's glory, it becomes 
increasingly reasonable to live for my own, maybe not glory, but self-preservation. In the second half of life, I've had many people telling me the temptation towards self-preservation can amplify and it can, intestif- it, it, it can intensify. There's lots of voices in our culture that will also honor that movement, saying, that's reasonable, that's good, that's natural. For you, you've, you've, you've put in your time, you've done your thing, now this is about you now. What works for you? How do we restructure life around what makes you feel safe? What makes you feel good? Verse 3, when Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. A lot of little details in this passage that are very important. He's fleeing for his life. He has a servant with him, kind of a disciple and understudy. And it says he leaves them. He leaves him in Beersheba, leaves him in a city. I, I, I'm, I'm fleeing, and I don't want you to follow me. So he goes into the wilderness on his own. He goes into the desert where he's safe from Jezebel, from this threat that has emerged, but he's also alone. He's decided, I, I'm going to intentionally isolate myself. And I think that's a temptation that becomes increasingly strong as we move into the second half of life, the temptation to travel alone. Now again, for some of us, or for many of us, that's probably not literally going to look like a constantly trying to do everything on your own, but it's going to look like a, it can look like a kind of a a relational isolationism, where you come to church, you're not engaging in being vulnerable and seeking to invest in a relationship. You're going to church alone. You get that, right? You, You can show up to a small group alone. You can go into your workspace and be surrounded by people, but you're intentionally, out of self-preservation and protection, doing it alone. And there can be this isolation that builds up. And you're safe because certainly by your 50s, you've learned some hard lessons about how relationships are difficult. And you've probably toyed with the idea that, you know, it just would be easier in life if I didn't have to deal with the people stuff. So it becomes more tempting to be increasingly superficial in your relationships, both to preserve yourself and to not waste time and energy on people who may hurt you the way other people have hurt you in the past. So you can harden your heart a little bit, and you can still move through life, and you can be social, but you're still isolated. You've said, by your attitude and your actions, by the interior posture of your heart, you've sent people away. Some people do that in their marriages. Some people do that in their family, close relationships that they might say on paper, this is really important to me, but they're traveling alone. That's a real temptation. Because relationships can be exhausting, they can be wounding, and out of those wounds, if we don't process them well, if we're not allowing God to heal those wounds, bring reconciliation. If we're not forgiving, um, exercising that spiritual muscle of forgiveness, it becomes increasingly tempting to just kind of go it alone. But look at where the isolation leads Elijah. He originally started by running for his life, and now we read he comes to a broom, brush, a broom bush 
He sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. His physical isolation and his relational isolation has led him to a place of no longer safety. He's safe from Jezebel, but now he's in a place of hopelessness. His lack of community has begun to disintegrate and pull apart his sense of integrity and his sense of, yeah, God is strong and on the throne, and I'm his prophet, and I have a calling. He's now at a place where he's facing hopelessness, and that's the third temptation that can seize us at some point in the second half of our life, is just hopelessness. There, there's no more point in me living. I've scanned the horizon. I've looked at all the factors. I'm old enough now to realize how life works, and when you put all of those factors into, the, uh, into your calculations, what comes out for me is just take my life because I'm, I'm as good as dead. Elijah has decided he's no longer any use to God or Israel. All he sees are threats. He doesn't see any opportunities anymore. He's seeing all the negative, none of the positive. The fight has left him, so is hope and any kind of spiritual resiliency. And so he asks God to take his life because he sees himself as just kind of like the walking dead. I'm, I'm dead man walking. He's turned, it, he's turned his back on his calling as a prophet. This is a real low point in Elijah's life. He comes to the end of himself. And a lot of people, depression spikes in, in two uh, area, stages of life, adolescence and the first five years after retirement. We'll talk about that next week with the 60s. But the depressive movement often begins uh, in uh, stages of empty nest. When the children have gone and that unifying mission is no longer there and couples have to now turn to God and turn toward each other and kind of say, what, what are kind of we living for? There's a temptation to hopelessness, to a sense of, I don't really see what the point of going on is anymore that can subtly take hold in the second half of life. There's a world weariness that can set in where we kind of know, again, how, how the game of life tends to go and we begin anticipating, well, even if we wanted to do this, it's not really probably much that would come of it because you'd have to do this and then X, Y, and Z would have to fall into place and oh, it's just exhausting thinking about it. So we just start looking for all the reasons why things aren't going to work, which fuels a hopelessness, which then gives rise to a kind of a cynicism. And I would argue, I don't know if there's anything that is more uh, damaging and destructive to, to one's kind of spiritual vibrancy in life than cynicism. It'd be top four or five postures of the heart, I think, that will undercut spiritual vibrancy in Christ uh, tremendously fast in a really total way. Because when, once cynicism has taken root, what you're doing is you're slowly allowing all hope to get swallowed up in kind of a hardened posture towards life that says, ah, there's no point. And we might never say, I'm better off dead. But in the second half of life, it becomes more and more reasonable to say, I'd be better off just not trying. I'd be better off just not picking up the phone. I'd be better off not serving. I'd be better off not giving. I'd be better off fill in the blank. So we just put things to death before they even have a chance 
to sprout to life. So those are the three temptations which really begin to speak into our hearts as we move into and through the midlife transition. But look in verse 5, there's a turn in the text, and now we're starting to see truths that God is doing in Elijah's life that I think all of us need to hear, but probably especially those maybe moving into and through their 50s. Verse 5, Then he lay down under a bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Don't run past that verse. That's really, really important. God sends an angel to Elijah, which in light of what we just read is, is the turning point of the story. It's this grace note where Elijah is as low as he can get. It seems reasonable for him that God would just take his life. He's done. He's got nothing left in the tank. And God sends an angel to him and says, get up and eat. And this is a truth that everyone needs to hear and know, but I think those in their 50s need to hear this again for the first time. And that is this truth. God meets us where we are, not where we're supposed to be. God meets you where you are, not where you're supposed to be. I've talked to many people in their 50s over the last number of years, and I don't know many people who in their 50s feel like they're where they're supposed to be. They've got it all together, relationally, financially, spiritually. And the good news of this story and the good news of the gospel is that that's okay. You don't have to have your stuff together. It's not a prerequisite to having God come into your life. This story is a beautiful illustration of the larger story of the incarnation, which is when we're lost, when we're broken, when there's no point for us to go on, when we're just a disordered, dysfunctional mess, God comes to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God meets us where we are, even if where we are is a hot mess of self-pity and desperation and disorder, like it was for Elijah. And the amazing thing about the story is that none of our messes repulses God. There's no mess in our life that is strong enough. There's no self-pity. There's no apathy. There's no spiritual deadness that is so entrenched that God can't do anything about it, that God can't bring life and restoration from it. God can redeem those in the deepest and darkest pit. I love that about this story. And I want to pause here because, you know, I have, a, I have a note here to make mention of the fact that I wouldn't be surprised if there is someone here this morning, even one person, who is, metaphorically speaking, kind of sitting under a broom tree waiting to die. Maybe that is quite literal. Maybe there's someone here who's dancing with suicidal thoughts. You don't see hope. You see threat, no opportunities. It might just be in a certain sphere or area of your life where you're just ready to give up because that just feels like an irredeemable um, lost cause of a person, a situation. And maybe an encounter with the living God is the farthest thing from your mind. It was for Elijah. He wanted 
The, the answer to his prayer was that God would take his life. That's what he wanted. God answers in a different way. And in spite of those things, in spite of maybe you this morning feeling like all hope is lost in this area, or for my entire life, maybe you need to listen carefully to this text and hear the words of this angel. Maybe the Holy Spirit's going to impress those words in your heart, and you need to hear, get up and eat. You need to know that God is drawing near to you. You need to know that God is close to the brokenhearted. The bruised reed he won't break, and a smoldering wick he won't snuff out. God comes to us, not where we're supposed to be, but where we are. That's good news, and that is good news that you need to hear this morning. Verse 6, he looked around, and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. The journey is too much for you. I think that line makes more sense in the second half of your life than in the first half of your life. I think, I think in the first half of your life, um, you kind of do feel like the journey isn't too much for me. I can do this. I can muster the right strategies and tools, and I can leverage my education, and I have the right support systems. I can do this. In the second half of life, what's becoming clear, even if it's scary to own up to, is this journey is too much for me. I don't have all the resources that I need to move into and through life well. I want to take hold of flourishing and the abundant life that I believe God offers, but I can't do it in my own power. And if you're paying attention to the lessons that God has been planting in your life in the decades leading up to this, that is what you are beginning to suspect. You can't do your life really well in your own power. And that's the second truth, that the journey is too much for you. You need help. You need God. The 50s is where we often begin to reach our physical and emotional and spiritual limitations. I have a friend who I'm not going to name, Bruce Clank, and he's turning 50. (laughs) And my friend is having this experience of, I, as I move through life, I'm kind of discouraged by some of these limitations that I'm coming up. My mind is like, go, we can do this. I, I, I can do this. But I've reached the limits of my capacity. And as we move into our 50s and beyond, all of those, our capacities just seem more and more feeble for what we actually need to accomplish. The strength that we thought we needed to move to that next stage just doesn't seem to be there. Notice that this statement by the angel is a statement. It's not a question. Elijah, is the journey too long for you? It's not a question. The journey is too much for you. It's too much for any of us. And yet this is the good news hidden in the passage. God sees our lack of capacity, our weakness, our insufficiency, and he's ultimately provided a fountainhead of power and nourishment in the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to say two things. If you are not a Christian, you need to hear that. The journey is too much for you. You need Jesus. You need his redeeming, sustaining, regenerating power. 
mediated by his spirit and by the word of God to come into your life. And it's important for you. I mean, that's a whole sermon series that I could go into. But I just want to say, you need Christ. And if you are not a Christian, I would implore you to consider turning your life over to Christ. You might not know exactly what that means. All you need to know is the journey's too much for me. I can't take hold, like last week, the rich young ruler. What do I lack? I'm a good person. I got some st- I got my life in order even. I'm rich, but I'm lacking something. Jesus says, come follow me. If you are a Christian, we need to be reminded as you move into the second half of life, the journey is often too much for us. We need to engage our faith in a deeper way. We need to enter into a new season of surrender to God, like Max and Colleen have done, where we say, God, I think you're putting this on our hearts, but if you want us to move down this path, this is too much for us. You have to show yourself strong. You have to empower us for this new mission. I love in the uh, affirmations for the Evangelical Covenant Church, we have six affirmations that kind of form the backbone of our identity and our mission and our, our theology. One of them is phrased as, Conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit. I think that becomes more meaningful. I would imagine that becomes more meaningful in the second half of your life. Where your own weakness and limitation comes a little bit more to the fore, and you have to learn conscious dependence on the Holy Spirit's power in order to fulfill what God has put in your heart. Verse 8, so Elijah got up, ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And let's stop there for a second. Notice Elijah goes on a pilgrimage. He was running away from Jezebel. And now he gets up and he runs towards God. And that's a significant movement in the passage. He's running towards Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. This is the place of revelation for God's people. Um... That might be a good idea for you in your 50s to go on a bit of a pilgrimage. And it might not be a physical pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to the Holy Land, but it might be a good idea to take a month and say, what does it look like for me to take a month or three months and actively seek God? Maybe it's going to be for 40 days and 40 nights. And that's going to be a time of some prayer, some fasting, some scripture memorization. I'm just going to keep putting certain questions before God. God, what do you have next for me in this next stage of life? on this pilgrimage. I think that's a good thing to do. Maybe you need to go on on some kind of spiritual retreat. But notice that this is the third truth. Notice that God strengthens us in order for us to seek and serve him. God doesn't come into Elijah's life and say, Elijah, this journey is too much for you. I'm going to sustain. Here's some food. There you go. Slaps him on the butt and says, go and live your life. Go for it. Awesome. He sustains and strengthens Elijah so that Elijah can, in a new way, seek him and ultimately serve him. And that's important, too, because God isn't interested in the second half of our lives with simply raising us up and then setting us out to live the life that we want to live. He has a new mission and calling for us. So his sustaining, redeeming power, he lifts us up out of the pit to say, now you're mine in a new way, and this is the direction that you're going because I'm not done with you yet. There are people and situations that I'm going to use you powerfully in. But you are now, in a sense, my slave. The New Testament doesn't um, broach that language. It talks about us as slaves of Christ. We don't turn our lives over to Jesus so that we can then make Jesus deliver unto us the life that we want. I turn my life over to Jesus to become a slave to Jesus, trusting that as I follow him, and live out my life, he will direct me to um, the life that he intends for me. 
and he's directing me in ways that allow me to maximally serve and honor him. In the second half of your life, it's, it's, we sh- I think we should be learning, certainly as Christians, we, we should be learning in the second half of life that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And that we should be seeking to serve him with a greater zeal than we did in the first half. Verse 9, then he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. Remember, Elijah just experienced a fire uh, fighting the prophets of Baal. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Gentle whisper is a very difficult um, concept to translate because in Hebrew, almost every Jewish commentator will say the, the best direct translation we can get is thin silence. God is not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire, but after the fire comes a thin silence. But Elijah heard it. Something very mysterious is happening here. God is changing how he reveals himself to Elijah. Truth number four, I think this becomes amplified in the second half of life, that God communicates loudest in thin silences. The days are increasingly over where God will use big, dramatic, huge, obvious, um, attention-getting, supernatural movements in our life. We need to learn to follow in the footsteps of Elijah and learn to sit quietly, pray quietly with God in the presence of God, learn practices. Contemplative prayer, broadly speaking, is, is a big umbrella term for the practice of trying to learn to receive from God in the thin silence, mediated by his spirit and his word. And the 50s are a good time to begin learning some of those practices. A lot of people feel a deepening call to prayer in the second half of their life. And they experiment with all kinds of different prayer techniques. And I have resources that if if you're looking to shake things up in your prayer life or to experiment with some of these contemplative practices, please email me and I'll get them into your hands. But a lot of people are looking for this. This resonates with them that um, they're both experiencing God more in the mundane and in the quiet and in the normalcy of life. And they're enjoying that. And they want to avail themselves of that more and more. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. And the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came, and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, and Abel Maloah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. 
Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He, Elisha, was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elijah then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elijah left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. Remember the start of the story? Elijah has a servant, sends him away, goes into the wilderness. I can do life on my own, self-preservation. God's taken him full circle. And part of the major redemptive movement in Elijah's life is God says, you are looking to abandon people. Specifically, you are walking away from the next generation. Now I'm going to pull you back in. And I'm going to assign someone that you are going, he's going to be your successor. You need to mentor this person. Elijah, you have a mission, and it is to build into Elisha. And that leads to our last truth, truth number five. Generativity, and I'll explain that term in a second. Generativity is critical to second half of life thriving. Generativity is critical to second half of life thriving. Generativity is when we, it comes from Jean Piaget, uh, Eric Erickson, sorry, who said, a psychologist who said, the major, he wouldn't have said spiritual challenge, but he would have said sociological challenge of the second half of life is generativity versus stagnation. Am I going to serve and leave a legacy for the next generation, or am I going to stagnate by turning inward on self-preservation? In his book, The Courage to Teach, Parker Palmer talks about how he, what he notices in teachers who stay part of the schooling system for a long time, and how cynicism takes root in a lot of teachers. Um, and I want to read this quote to you because I think it's a really beautiful... Now, he's talking about the relationship between teachers and students in, in a school setting. But think about this just in relationship to elders and the young, to parents and to children or grandchildren, um, teenagers to older mentors within the church. He says, It is not unusual to see faculty, we might substitute adults, in midlife don the armor of cynicism against students, education, any sign of hope. It is the cynicism that comes when the high hopes one had for teaching have been dashed by experience or by the failure to interpret one's experience accurately. I'm always impressed by the intensity of this cynicism. For behind it, I feel the intensity of the hopes that brought these people into teaching. Now, perhaps those hopes can be rekindled because the intensity is still there. Rightly understood, this sort of cynicism may contain the seeds of its own renewal. The way of renewal, according to Eric Erickson, is called generativity. It is a lovely and an exact word because it suggests two related dimensions of healthy adults. On the one hand, it suggests creativity, the ongoing possibility that no matter our age, we can help co-create the world. On the other, it suggests the endless emergence of the generations, with its implied imperative that the elders look back towards the young and help them find a future that the elders will not see. You put these two images together, 
and generativity becomes creativity in service of the young. A way in which the elders serve not only the young, but also their own well-being. I think for many, many people, God's second half of life mission is expressed by a calling to leverage your experience, your talents, your education, all the wounds, all the things that have happened in your life to leverage those for the good and blessing of the next generation. And there's a huge difference between people who suspect that's where life is heading and they say, no thanks, and those who say, this is kind of scary, but yes. Those are two widely divergent paths. See, God's second half of life mission isn't about you or your comfort. Freedom 55. Get to a place where you can retire. You've put in your time. Now you get to structure all of life around what you want. I'm not necessarily against retirement. If you understand retirement to be retiring from one kind of work to move into a new kind of mission. Retirement is, I would argue, antichrist if the paradigm is I retire from work and responsibility and calling and I get to now just live life on my terms as I see fit. Jesus comes off the throne, I go on the throne. And I just live life and it's fun. Retirement, and we'll talk about this next week, is an amazing opportunity to seek God for a second half of life mission. But in your 50s, it's important to start pushing against those voices that would say, of course it's natural to build life around what you want and what you need now. You're tired, you've put it, like, yes, think about, just save up, now start putting all your eggs in this basket. You've got to be aware in your 50s that those voices are going to get louder and louder and louder, and you have to be grounded in your faith and in a vision for your Christian life that allows you to say, I'm not going to listen to that voice. That, that's going to take me down a really bad path. It's going to take me down a path of stagnation. I need to hear, to the, I need to be able to respond to the voice who says, come follow me, and we're going to alleviate any crosses and burdens and inconveniences in your life. We're going to help you set you up in a situation where you can experience heaven on earth. You need to be able to respond, heaven's coming. I have no doubt about that. So that's why I don't need to seek it now. So what I'll do is I'll follow someone who says, take up your cross. And I'll continue, yes, with limited capacity, but by God's grace, I will continue to push into striving, to seeking to serve God, and to pour out my life for the next generation. So that I'm not teaching the next generation, your faith is something you kind of take seriously in this window of your life, and then you can kind of shift it to the side once, uh, once you have enough wealth or privilege stored up. I want to teach them a different way. Many people moving into their 50s need a new mission. They need a compelling vision that isn't focused on themselves and their own creature comforts. If you do that, I guarantee you that apathy and depression and stagnation on almost every level will set in. But if we seek God and are open to new things, there are new exciting chapters waiting to be written. God took a frustrated, tired, world-weary prophet and God totally reinvigorated him. And then he launched him into a meaningful second half of life journey. 
And I stand here with firm conviction that he can and will do that with any of us here if we are willing to recognize that the journey's too much for us and we allow Jesus to lead us into something new and into something profoundly good. Let's pray. Jesus, at every stage of life, the call is the same. Come, follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. God, I pray specifically this morning for those who are moving into and through and out of their 50s, that you would be teaching them what this looks like, the shape that that takes in this journey. For those of them who are tired and who are weary, may you provide bread and water for the journey. May you sustain them by your spirit, even here this morning, God. As we worship you, may you pour into hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.